4: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: Hello. Hello. How are you? Well, I have so much to say. Uh, men's tights. OK. This is, this is what it's come to. I've realised that they're a very important invention. When do you think it was that men started being able to wear tights for running? This week? No, but it's funny. It's like one of those things where... You don't notice it until you notice it. I mean, I now wear tights because it's so it's quite cold. Are they pretty, pretty Polly? Ah, uh. wow! Ed is showing
5: me his leg on Zoom. Firstly, can I just compliment your hip flexibility? You really have that got that up high. It's like watching the kids from Fame. I'm not sure about that, but <laughs> with legs like yours, I think uh, never has it been more true that if you've
3: got it, then flaunt it. I think there's a whole issue which I don't, which I think is a, a sort of Sideline, which is should you wear shorts over your tights if you're a man? I think the answer is yes, but we don't need to sort of investigate or interrogate that too much and things <laughs> so we had Sherry on last week, and she was an Obama fellow, right mm. and so then i've had this idea, which I got incredibly excited about last week, and you said to me we should it's a good idea, and we should sort of talk to our listeners about it in the fullness of time and this doesn't represent the fullness of time but i'm sort of too excited about it so we've had this idea that we should have a a cheerful fellow right now the point of a cheerful fellow as i see it and i've been interested in your thoughts about it, it does sort of relate to the tights issue for reasons that will, are tenuous but will become clear i can't wait how you're going to link these two things together okay okay so the thought is having a cheerful fellow you're you're sort of trying to achieve social change in some way and what we offer you is our listeners right to in different ways help you know facilitate your social change it might be advice it might be they offer activism it might be problem solving a whole range of things right it's it's really exciting yeah so i'm interested in, in our listeners views on this how does it relate to my tights in the following way which is that So I'm basically, everyone was quite impressed. Well, a couple of people were quite impressed by my 23 minute, 35 kilometers from last week. I had a friend of mine in Canada. Roger emailed me to say he was impressed. Keir Starmer's office, I was preparing for Mar on on Friday, Uh, it was Saturday, and I was talking to them and I said something about this completely gratuitously and they were like, God, you can do a, and I think it's partly because most people think I'm sort of gangly and uncoordinated so the idea that I could do it, anyway long story short so my question to our listeners is is this cheerful fellow thing a good idea answers yes if you think it's a bad idea don't let us know that (laughs) uh uh, but then how do i get from a 20 because i did another run today hence the tights how do i get from 23 plus to say 22 minutes
5: i see it's really pretty tenuous basically you're looking for you you want our listeners to be some kind of
3: running coach for you and give you hacks well yes but i mean that's sort of incidental really but it's like you know if listeners can be my running coach they can be the coach for the cheerful fellows who will be doing something slightly more socially useful than me reducing my running time what if somebody just emails in steroids I think the only artificial substances I'm allowed are the special trainers that I've got. I wonder if with you, you're so
5: competitive, and I know that you're competing against yourself in that you're trying to beat a personal best, but I wonder if you were in a race that would make a difference to you. Do you think? We could
3: have a Reasons to be Cheerful Sports Day. (laughs) I absolutely used to hate those things. I was the kid who dropped the egg sort of just, you know, one metre after the start line, (laughs) and then everybody would chuckle. But look at you now!
5: look at you become yeah. this
3: athlete athlete i think you're just sort of overdoing it here but let's let's not so sort the of gilderly anyway the main thing is not about my running or about my tights it's about cheerful fellow so i think at this stage we want people's reaction to the idea don't we yeah it is a good idea isn't it it really is and it might shave a few seconds off your personal
5: best now you've got something to report in the here suit stakes. I do. I will come back to this in my reason to be cheerful as well, which uh, ah. again, drawing the line between the two things, it, it, it may seem, how is he going to do that? But just like Ed and the fellowship and yeah. he's running in his tights, it, it, it is possible. Um, so do you, I don't know if you have a, any memory of this, but last week on the podcast, when we were doing the Zoom, I was constantly tugging at my beard. It was getting very unkempt. I was looking a bit like a castaway. And I kept finding long bits and then, not when we were talking to the guests, but when we were talking to each other, grabbing scissors and just hacking bits of it off. Does that ring a bell? You looked a bit like sort of Oliver Reed, is that yeah, right? Yeah, and it was, it was driving me mad. It was almost becoming like a compulsion to snip away at this beard. So this went on for a day or two. And then my wife said, it's got to come off. The beard has got to go because it's got so many holes. There are so many bear patches in it. I said, oh, but I really hate my face without without a beard. And she said, well, you should just keep keep the moustache and then let it grow back. So I've kept a moustache,
3: but I have no beard. I want to put you on full screen because I need to sort of get the full... Okay. I mean, I think it's so interesting because I think you, you transform from cuddly Jeff mm. to sort of cuddly Jeff with attitude. I, I think you could be... The murderer in death on the nile uh you could be like a you could be a murderer in an agatha christie right you think there is something
5: diabolical
3: about this mustache no 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 i think it suits you a lot i think you could be peter mandelson in the 80s no i think it's more i think it's cad bounder but in a
5: good way is a, a cad and bounder inseparable if, if you were a cad are you just by definition a bounder or or do they have distinct traits
3: I don't quite know. Mm. Well, I think it gives you a je ne sais quoi, definitely. Thank you. Well, more to report in my reason to be cheerful in a little while. Wow. I'm excited. Right. What are we talking about this week, Ed? Well, this week we're talking about lifelong learning or adult education. Now, lifelong learning has played an incredibly important role in enabling people in totally different walks of life to gain new skills, retrain and learn throughout their lives, And in the UK, we've actually had a really thriving tradition of adult education through much of the 20th century. But in recent years, this has been in decline. Participation is at its lowest level in more than two decades, and funding has fallen by nearly half over the last decade. We're asking how we can rebuild lifelong learning in the 21st century. First, we're going to be talking to Sue Mann, a bus driver from Blackpool, And she's also a union learning rep in her workplace. That means that she's part of something called the Union Learning Fund, which is basically a fund that was set up under the Labour government to help union members and non-union members uh, to engage in lifelong learning administered through the trade unions. And unfortunately, it's being abolished next month by the government. We'll be asking Sue about her experience of learning and how her colleagues have, have benefited from it. Then we're talking to author, campaigner, and fantastic friend of the pod, Melissa Ben. Ah, we love her. We love Melissa Ben. And adult education guru, Sir Alan Tuckett. They recently served together on a major commission into the future of adult education in the UK. And we'll be asking them about their vision in their report and how we can make it a reality. So, Ed, what is your reason to be cheerful this week? Well, I think my reason to be cheerful relates to, uh, I think, something we talked about in the previous few weeks, we got to the end, Justine and I, of Call My Agent. Wasn't it fantastic? But I found it quite moving, actually, the end.
5: Yeah, it was. It it, it didn't end in the way you would expect it to. I, it's interesting as to why it's such a great a great programme. I think it's a fun world to be inside of. We haven't really seen anything in, yeah, inside that world of agents' yeah. offices. I think it's really well plotted, so it's, it's, it, it can almost be farce-like. So it's kind of exciting to watch. Yeah. And I just think it 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 paints a certain kind of Parisian
3: life that's that you really aspire to
5: while you're watching it.
3: It's also quite good escapism. Yeah, and it's funny. It's properly funny as well. Yeah, and it's properly properly funny. Anyway, it's been a it's been a great ride. What about you? What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful
5: is I had my chin complimented by
3: Nagamonchetti. My God. Yes, I'm definitely on Team naga Wow, I'm I'm, I'm even more on Team naga now. Um, how might my life have gone if i'd have lost the beard earlier and just gone mustachioed sooner what did she say what was the context i was
5: filling in on five live earlier this week and she does the morning show now she's really good She she did the show before the one i was doing now because of covid we weren't in the same studio but we could see each other on the monitors so as she's handing over to me she says coming up next is jeff lloyd he's somebody i've only ever heard on the radio i didn't i didn't know what he looked like so straight away i jump in with an apology because i think it's awful if you know somebody from the radio and yeah. then you finally see what they look like and it's it's always uh, hideous especially so in my case but she, she said no no you're sporting a fine mustache and i said yeah it's kind of by accident i shaved my beard off for these reasons and she said that's interesting to me because usually people have beards because they have a weak chin or a double chin and you have a great chin. Wow. And I think she's wrong. But who am I to argue with Naga
3: Manchetti about the greatness of my chin? No longer can it be said that you have a face for radio.
4: You're listening to Reasons
5: to
0: be Cheerful with Ed Vance and Jeff Lloyd.
5: Well, to begin, we are going to hear about what a difference... A lifelong education can make from Sue Mann, who's a bus driver and union learning rep at Blackpool Transport. Hello, Sue. Hello. Tell us your story. You came to being uh, a union learning rep through your job at Blackpool Transport.
6: Yeah, we've had a learning curve here for quite a few years, and a friend asked me, "Was I interested in um, becoming a union rep?" And I said, uh, "I don't know what it entails. What? What do we do? You know." And she explained it all to me, so I had to get uh, voted on, which I did you're just helping people really you know with courses and such
5: and tell us what what you've learned not just about you know the the scheme itself but you've you've um, taken courses through it tell us tell us about the stuff you've learned
6: well when I was fifteen I left school and I had not one qualification, not one and I've now got I think it's about 13 or 14 and I was 52 at the time when I started so I started very basic um, functional skills we teach that each week you know that's just an ongoing thing and um, I did that and then I thought right I need to go do another one so that I could help people I can't help them if I didn't know what I were doing basically so I, I did functional skills English and Maths then I did IT, because I weren't very good with computers, so I just did a basic course on computers. And it just went on from there. I did uh, mental health, and I'm a mental health first aider. And I did uh, Spanish, sign language. Every, every course that goes on, I do it. You're the best advert for,
3: for learning, lifelong learning, Sue.
6: Well, I got the bug when I did the first course... And I just went on from there, really. And I've got my um, level three in education and training, so I can teach things that I know about, which I'm a first aid instructor as well. I have quite a few strings to my bow.
3: And did you find it difficult, the first course you did, to take the plunge or not?
6: A little bit, but because I was in the learning curve, I had all the support that I needed. Uh, We have a tutor that comes in and, and they help you through it, you know. You have to do a little bit of work at home as well, online or whatever. But basically once I got that first one under my belt, that was it. I was away. And up until that
5: point, you know, when you think about leaving school at fifteen, how how did you think about learning? Was 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 school something that let you down in a certain way? It didn't didn't engage you in the way that learning later in life has?
6: my brother left me a little legacy at school he, he was a bit naughty so you know in them days you got it you were all tied really with the same brush so I, I really didn't enjoy school at all i wanted to stay on at school but it was just it was too difficult really so when i started doing it in the learning curve i thought just look at all the years i've missed you know i i could have been doing anything i've had lots of different jobs throughout the years but I could have done made some with my life you know but I feel like I have made something now I, I feel quite proud of what I've done over the years absolutely
5: and, and that's I'd like to talk to you a bit more about that because obviously you know some of these courses have had really practical applications in terms of uh, your work or your role with the union and but but some of them are just about feeding your brain. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about what you feel that that the opportunity to learn like this has done for you?
6: It's given me a lot of confidence, really. You know, to be able to say to my colleagues, you hear a lot of them say, no, I'm, I'm not going in there, I'm not doing that. And so I usually pull them to one side quietly and say, why? Oh, God, I'm too old. I can't do it. I know I can't. And I just explain what I've done. And and they say, oh, right. And that's how I get a lot of um, students to come in, really. I just tell them what I've got and show them a big stack of qualifications and they're quite happy with it. That gives me loads of um, pleasure. I think it's great. What is the impact that you're
3: seeing of these learning opportunities on on your colleagues when when they go ahead with it?
6: I've witnessed, like, first-hand, the best one was a colleague who had dyslexia and we convinced him that he could do it and it took him two years to complete his functional skills which led him to win learner of the year with our local college which were fantastic for, for him and for me i was over the moon for him
3: you've mentioned the learning curve suit so ju- just for our listeners so so they understand what that is what what is the learning curve
6: it, it's basically um like a a classroom, a room, where they can come and uh, there's computers in there and reference books and anything. They can come in and do anything they like. we help them with form filling. You know, not everybody can fill a form in. They're that complicated these days. Uh,
3: now, the government's announced it's going to cut the Union Learning Fund, I'm afraid, from next month, yeah, which funds these courses. Just talk to us about what effect that's going to have, do you think, and and, and why it would be much, much better to maintain it?
6: Well, it, it, I think it'll, it'll be just absolutely devastating, you know. The amount of people it'll affect, it, it goes into hundreds of thousands, really, throughout England. It, it reaches a lot of people that wouldn't be able to afford to go to college, or couldn't make the time to go to college. Our team here, they, they changed people's shifts to allow them to attend. You know, so if there's no anybody to do, to do the courses, we've nothing we can do. We can't share anything else with them. And we've got learner reps that come from Manchester to teach certain things. So they will all disappear. All the, um, I think it's 750 courses... That Unite the Union, let us have for free. They'll all just disappear. I think it's the worst thing I've ever heard announced, to be fair.
3: And and it's called the Union Learning Fund, but just to be clear, you don't need to be a member of the trade union to access the learning. Is that right?
6: Oh, that's right, yeah. And Anybody can come in and, and do any of the courses. I've just signed um, one of our uh, customer experience staff up today to do a mental health course which that's uh, level two, and it's all fully funded. It's it's amazing.
3: And what's going to happen afterwards when this thing goes away, when, when this thing is abolished, if they're going to abolish
6: it? Well, it, it's quite frightening to think, really, because I, I think we will continue here, but obviously we won't have as many courses to run. It'll People will have to start to pay, you know, contribute towards them. It, I don't know. I really don't know. Everything's going to disappear what we're used to just using on a daily basis
3: that is just terrible isn't
6: it it's awful yeah
3: and what are your colleagues about saying about it it, it, you know in in, uh in blackpool transport
6: well my my boss um she's wrote a letter um there's one or two people here that's wrote a letter because it it just i i I can't put into words what it it's devastation it's going to cause really
3: I'm incredibly sorry. I mean, just just thinking about the sort of future, what lessons should we learn from your experience and that of your colleagues? Do you think, Sue? But from your own experience, what would you say is the most important lesson for, from that?
6: I, I think it, it just proves that at any age you can um, still learn. They say that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and I, I'm sorry, I disagree with that, because you can. <laughs> Whatever anybody wants to do, if they put their mind to it, they can go ahead and do it. But just unfortunately with this um, learning fund, if it's not there for them free, I think there's going to be a lot of difficulties.
3: Well, look, man, you're an incredibly powerful advocate for the Union Learning Fund and for actually lifelong learning in general. We hope even at this late stage, the government might change its mind. But for now, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thank you.
1: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite.
3: Now, to talk further about lifelong learning, adult education, and all that jazz, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Melissa Ben long-time friend of the podcast, writer, campaigner, and also a member of the Centenary Commission, and Sir Alan Tuckett, former Chief Executive of the National Institute of Adult Continuing Education, and a member of the Centenary Commission uh, on Adult Education. And I think it's fair to describe him as Mr. Adult Education. Thank you so much for joining us, both of
2: you. You're welcome. It's good to be here.
3: Melissa, why don't we start with you? Tell us how you came to this issue and your role in the commission and what you learned during that process about the importance of adult education.
4: Well, you know, in a way, you come to these issues just through life, don't you? I mean, I, I was thinking that I did the standard educational thing. You know, I have got all my Exams. I went to university. I got a good degree, but I came out of the LSE and I went straight into a Workers Educational Association class. And you, what was the class in? It, the class was in varieties of Italian communism. My goodness! <laughs> but I, what interests me now, when I look back, is that it was my own understanding, which I think is fair, that. Uh, You know, the education I'd had up to then had only just shown me what I didn't know, and that there was an entire lifetime of learning ahead. The other thing to say about that is that was a period, it was quite a long time ago, when of course you could walk into a WEA class. For
3: those who don't know, just say what the WEA is.
4: The Workers' Education Association, and Alan will correct me, but I think it was established in the sort of 19th century. It was an organisation for workers to educate themselves and has the most wonderful, rich tradition. But one of the reasons we're here today, and I'll, I'll let Alan say something about it, is that You know, this country has had a very rich tradition of adult education. And the 1919 report that we were looking at 100 years later really established a kind of national system and made us the envy of the world from the post-First World War until the 1990s. But it's now been cut and decimated and diminished in the name of austerity, uh, skills, vocation. We're in danger of losing that rich tradition tradition. Alan,
3: let's, um, uh, let, let's turn to you. Could you just say something about, because Melissa's mentioned it, just a little bit about why the 1919 commission was so significant? And then and this is probably an unfair question to do it all in one go. And then say a little bit about where we are today on adult education.
2: 1919, well, really 1918, um, the government of the day created a Ministry of Reconstruction, same uh, spirit as created homes fit for heroes for the end of the First World War, looking to try to regenerate a confident civil society. You'd had the suffragette movement in the years up to the war. You'd had a lot of trades union disquiet during the war. And there was a kind of argument that you you needed with an expanded vote from uh, 1918 to Help create a society in which everybody felt they had access to the kind of information, knowledge, capacity to make a difference. And what they argued was that you really needed the state to have a responsibility for an overall strategy, that it should fund things, but it absolutely shouldn't ask questions about what people wanted to do um, in their studying, the things that you funded. It argued that there was a key role for the universities, um, in the end funded by the public, To make what they learned accessible to people. There was a role for local authorities to work with people who spent all day working with their hands to give them space to uh, enrich their lives uh, and a role for the voluntary sector, including critically the Workers' Education Association, then, as Melissa was saying.
3: How significant was the sort of implications of that report? How much did it? Sort of frame the future. Every
2: university developed a, an extramural department which thrived until they changed the mode of funding in the 90s. Every local authority developed adult education. Of course, it different levels. I I worked in the 80s in the London Education Authority, which offered the pinnacle of opportunities for for people, but it varied fit for purpose on local areas. And as an inspiration, I mean, all over the world, people look to the 1919 report in order to describe how lifelong, life-wide learning matters to a civilised society.
4: So I was rereading parts of the 1919 report because of thinking of coming on this example of modern adult education, this wonderful podcast, and uh, what, what really struck me was what an incredibly, I suppose I can't think of a better word, what an incredibly progressive view they yeah. had of the role of education in society. I mean, if you compared it to any of our, you know, politicians today, they have a sort of metrical, if that's a real word, metrical, arid view of what a good education is. And then you go back to this report. It's just this really, really rich idea of education as part of being a fully involved citizen. I don't want to depress our listeners because there, you know, there are wonderful people and there are good movements, but there is something we've lost.
2: Yes. I mean, really, Melissa, since um, about 2002, 2003, as the Treasury uh, had increasing influence from seeing education as a subdivision of economic activity. And Ed, you asked what's happened now. I mean, we've lost more than 2 million adult learners uh, in the last 15 years. There's been a 55% drop of adult participation in higher education. Employers alone in Europe, our employers train less than they did before the 2008 crash. In every other country, they invest more. So what you've got is a, a kind of tsunami of disappearing opportunity. And this is at a time when, with uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, with the challenges of understanding and changing things around climate uh, change, with people living longer, with longer working lives. All of those things uh, need us to be flexible learners, confident in learning. The one thing our government absolutely fails to understand, which 1919 got right, is that learning is the key industrial skill. You can learn something in one place for pleasure and you take it to the world of your work. Nowhere is that clearer than in the history of Ford when it created uh, an EDAP scheme, something for workers to learn anything they wanted to, run by the unions and the management, um, to learn anything they wanted to as long as it wasn't training, And within two years, they noticed improvements in absenteeism rates, in retention rates and in conflict resolution on the line. After a history of 60 years of difficult industrial relations, all of that came from the spread of a culture of learning. And that's something we've lost.
3: Melissa, what's your sense of the state of adult education from your work on the Commission?
4: well what what was really noticeable when we we did an overview obviously all commissions you start with an overview where are we now and it was absolutely clear that the numbers had plummeted quite dramatically And you could pinpoint various reasons for that, you know, 2007-8, the recession, austerity. But in fact, it went back to, I'm afraid, the mid-New Labour era. And there's quite a famous speech by Alan Johnson, which I, for some reason, has always stayed in my mind because it makes me laugh in a way, where he he said, I can't remember what, he must have had some economic-related job, but he said, we don't want Pilates and flower arranging, we want plumbing.
3: I think both of you are saying something quite important, which is that the concept of adult education should not simply be utilitarian in the sense of directly about the skills the economy needs, because because it's a culture of
6: learning.
4: I think one of the reasons that people sort of slightly switch off over adult education is because they do think, and because sort of the political class have made it this rather arid idea of, of skill it's not that skills and jobs don't matter but adult education is is a much richer thing and i know ed that you're interested in this idea of the gardening state
3: sue goss was on our podcast a few weeks ago talking about this well yes.
4: yeah and i mean i think adult education i was just thinking about this when thinking about coming on here i think it really fits into that idea that you allow people to to you allow people to take what interests them to nurse it, to, um, I'm not very good with gardening analogies because I'm an absolutely terrible gardener, but anyway, water it with their interest and uh, get other people to help them dig it up and so on. And, and, and But it does mean uh, trusting communities and individuals to make the decisions that may not immediately on a graph lead somewhere.
3: Well, Melissa, why is it important to be talking about this issue at this particular moment, where we are today?
4: There is such a Im- emergency about the fall in investment that there are, I think Alan will correct me, but I think there's now been six major commissions and committees saying that this part of our society is being starved of funds and public support.
2: And globally, you've got the International Labour Organisation saying, Number one key for the future of jobs is universal adult right to lifelong learning. You've got the World Economic Forum saying there's no way of coping with the fourth industrial revolution without everybody um, having the confidence and possibility to engage in in learning. Governments sign up all over the place. Look, Look at the Sustainable Development Goals from the UN, which had it, uh, lifelong learning in them, not only as a goal in itself, but as a catalyst for the achievement of all of the other social policies that we, uh, that we want to see. The difficulty is, it's, um, it's almost chameleon-like. The education of adults—it's useful in all kinds of ways, but of course, it's at the margins of the education budgets. So you almost feel like the person at the back of the class uh, putting their hand up to say they can answer every question. <laughs> you know, if you're thinking about what can you do about um, the rehabilitation of prisoners, well, there's clearly an educational role for adults in that. If you want people to have a, an old age in which they uh, they can live with some degree of dignity, then still. Stimulating the opportunity for them to learn things is terrific
4: yeah but i say th- i think it's also about being with other people and i've got quite a sort of pragmatic brain and maybe i see things visually but i always think you know there's so much policy on adult education and so many ways of looking at it and it's obviously very important but i always think if you said to ev- everybody and i'm hoping that when the jeffocracy question comes up that i can get this in, but I'm getting it in early. (laughs) You're the
3: first person to have spontaneously raised the Jeffocracy. (laughs) That's a good sign for the Jeffocracy. You definitely get brownie points from Jeff for that.
4: The thing I was going to say is that, you know, if I think of the area that I've lived in for 30 years, I think of it as there is our, our local surgery where I went yesterday to get my vaccination. There's the primary school where my children went. There's the secondary school where uh, my children you know but, but areas are that you know they are places where people can come together, and what is missing in areas are are you know and it probably might happen in a school actually because it used to be that you would go to a school you 'd use a school in the evening for classes. You know, I did an economics course at, you know, some local school, but they, they're not used for that anymore. But I, I I think if you said to people, look, in your area, you could go and you could learn, you know, anything you want and not just how to do something useful. Art history or another language or, um, uh, you know, emotional intelligence or all the things that are just so riveting And when we think about
5: lifelong learning, are you always necessarily talking about what Melissa described there, which I guess is is almost the thing that springs to mind straight away, night school and courses, or does it take other forms?
2: Informal, non-formal, formal. formal. I mean, learning from your peer group at work, Um, um, do it. Uh, Working in a a community group to sort out a zebra crossing for uh, outside your children's primary school involves learning a whole series of things. Uh, University of the Third Age, informal gatherings, social, as Melissa was saying, but of course also there's all the learning people have been doing online. Um, At its most spectacular and structured, there's things, the the Open University at one end, but uh, but every... area of enthusiasm will have its own uh, territories and you've got people like Parkinson's sufferers who create kind of expert patient groups across the world who end up knowing more than your local doctor does about your own problem so it's very very diverse and the danger then is because we spend more money on the formal more structured stuff that's where policy attention lies and so you get Uh, inattention to the other stuff and then you get white papers like the one that's just come out which sell yesterday's conclusion for the the fifth sixth seventh time in a row
5: in contrast with the white paper let's talk about the centenary commission inspired by the 1919 report you were both members of this what 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 did you find and then what what are your Ideas about what lifelong learning could look like in the future.
4: We found that there had been this sort of decline. We were very clear that, I think we were clear from the start, that we weren't like other commissions about revitalising skills. We were interested in adult education to promote citizenship although we had witnesses come to the inquiry, we also went round and saw a number of projects. And when you asked Alan, you know, what does adult education look like? I'm thinking about a project that I went to for the commission. And then I wrote an article in The Guardian about it, which was in Rochdale, which has, you know, as you know, has um, sort of a lot of deprivation. And what really struck me about that was it was adult education if you call it that. It was a project called the Citizens Curriculum and the reason it had been started was because the group of people who were sort of basically from the local authority had just got so fed up with this kind of targets and uh, make sure so many people reached level something and with with the population they were dealing with it just didn't work. So they went literally back to the ground and so I spent the day with him and I met a guy who had been homeless and so quite logically the first thing they did and this was a group of people who although they were sort of educators they also saw themselves as learning from you know there was not there was not that divide like we know and you don't know but they, they, they helped this man find somewhere to live and then he became involved with taking groups of people out on cycling tours because he liked cycling. And then he was incredibly proud. He told me he'd spoken at the local council and he said, I was shaking like a leaf, but I spoke to the councillors about the project. And so, again, it's back to that idea of, you know, I don't know what that would look like, plotted on a graph, but it was about somebody who'd been met in their human situation, which was really, really difficult. And had flowered. And I and, and I met a number of people. Some of them were in really desperate situations and um, they were being helped. In one case, a woman was just being helped to make some sort of contact with her daughter she was estranged from. In another situation, these were guys who were very socially... Um, kind of found it hard to mix with people but were brilliant at coding and all those things that I don't understand and had ended up working for various cool places in Manchester and actually it had led to employment that so it looked good on the graph. But, you know, I could see when I went to that project and other projects that this is hard for policymakers who like clarity and, you know, creating things into a box shape. What we've
2: lost is trust. I mean, all of our systems of funding things Uh, um, privilege the things we set out to teach and not what people discover and learn along the way. And in a way, that's one of the things we were trying to get at in the Commission by thinking about, well, where would a revitalised individual learning account fit in? How would you have community learning accounts to encourage groups of people to come together to explore what kind of learning would make a difference?
5: And, and what were those individual learning accounts? Can you, can you just explain to us what those were? And, and then maybe there's, some, there's something called community learning accounts. Talk to us about the, the differences between the two.
2: Individual learning accounts in the 1990s offered you £150 to study anything you wanted to. If you signed up, you're supposed to put in some money of your own. And the idea was rather like a bank account. You would develop a pot of money, which kick-started by government, to build your learning career. And at the time, there was really no control of who might offer as providers. So in the end, there was really in the last six months substantial fraud and the programme was closed down and there have been perfectly functioning ones all the time since. So it doesn't have to have fraud. The army has a version. Scotland's had one. Wales has had one. And they operate uh, in Singapore as well. So uh, individual learning accounts are part of the answer of how do you help people who don't think it's for them to think, well, I'll, I'll give it a try. Community learning accounts are um, a, an attempt to say There are things we know together which are more and different than the things we know on our own. If you can take a group of people who's got an enthusiasm or an interest where they think learning might help them make a difference to the quality of life of their communities, then funding to support that kind of activity should be available alongside the individual learning accounts. Both are designed to say that promotion, motivation, is a core of the adult learning curriculum. And how important
3: is this more universal vision? Because the way you just talked about it, Alan, you know, it was about a wide range of people having this opportunity. Why is that important, or is that important? And if so, why?
4: Do you know? I, I think it's worth pointing out something really simple, which is that the pe- there are people who, who go on learning in life, do courses take further degrees decide and they tend to be the the most educated so it's one of those you know if you've done well at school and you know i suppose it's a bit like me you know um, liked university and went straight out and decided to learn about i think it was varieties of italian communism i must check that but so that's a classic example the more educated you are the more you're likely to go on educating yourself through life and really if you're looking at what the political task is it's to reach those who have been selected out squashed under the current reforms of the government, a third of children in, uh, by GCSE time have been told they've not made the grade. They might sort of carry on because they've got to stay on. They have to stay on at school and maybe some will become re-engaged. But it's, it's those who, you know, are failing in the younger years are least likely to pick up education. And, and that's really, I suppose that is the political task.
5: Is there a Finland... Of lifelong education, in as much as people always go on about the finished school system, is there somewhere in the world that does that with lifelong education?
2: Well, the whole of Scandinavia is seen as a study circle democracy. They've had a hundred and fifty, two hundred years of people getting together to study anything they want to, supported by taxation money. So that that's a, a long-standing beacon. But in the last few years, Singapore has transformed its economy. It offers learning accounts to individuals. It su- supports employers to do training, but also wider learning for staff. It ha- it creates institutions for lifelong learning. And it really has engaged, transformed the skills of its people. Similarly, in Korea, where learning cities have taken off, I went to... Um, World Education Forum in Suwon. And there, there's a learning centre within 10 minutes of where everyone lives. And there's a library within 20 minutes of where everyone lives. And that may be a shelf of books um, on the metro station while you're waiting for the train. Or it may be a little centre in a hairdresser's or in an office uh, at work. Where it works best internationally is when you have a real serious national strategy and you have enough local decision-making, enough local opportunities for people to shape it in ways that work for them and their community.
3: Now, there is one place where adult education is going to be absolutely brilliant, and that, of course, is the Jeffocracy. Yes.
5: We've taken the recommendation by your commission that it should have its dedicated person in government who is
3: across this give us your first act jeff calls you in um, he's slightly di- he's slightly distracted because he's sort of watching the telly um, <laughs> uh, there's, there's
5: a very good open university program on the 57 varieties of italian
3: communism on there he's basically channel hopping between roadrunner and 57 varieties of italian
2: communism <laughs> i want him a bit like biden to I- issue five executive one is to g- create a cross-government, cross-community strategy so that you've got a framework that's very clear for its delivery. Secondly, I want to re-engage local authorities and charge them with um, uh, what was their statutory duty to secure adequacy of provision. The third one I want to do is to create a national campaign celebrating adult learners in all of their diversity to encourage other people to join in. There's a spectacular history of broadcasting helping stimulate participation. The fourth thing I do is say you can't have any public money as a university if you don't have a strategy yeah. for making what you know accessible to people. And uh, the same for colleges. And the fifth thing would be to say to employers, immediately you've got to introduce a mechanism of reporting on how much you've spent on training for your 20% highest skilled people and the 20% lowest skilled, because sure as eggs are eggs, at the moment, they'll be spending four and five times as much on the upper echelons as on the lower.
4: Jeff is going to be very busy. He's going to have to switch off that telly.
3: <laughs> I'm going to be busy with my rubber stamp. Honestly, he won't be switching off the telly, Melissa. What, uh, he's going to have a number of screens. Um, anything you would add, Melissa?
4: I know you've spoken to Sue, who has you know benefited from Union Learn, but the government's decision to axe it from next month. Which doesn't have the support even of, you know, civil servants think it's a great scheme. It's been a cross party scheme for 20 years. It costs virtually, you know, 12 million is not a lot in the scheme of things. It helps a quarter of a million, you know, workers a year. So get, bring back union learn. And then, and this is not in the commission report. This is a Melissa Benn special. I would like to sort of mandate a study circle for democracy in every area. And I'm happy to convene mine in the Kilburn area and just, you know, choose a number of difficult, a bit of citizens assembly, but with tea and biscuits. You know, when you're in a room with people, it's really hard to kind of, you know, to dehumanise them. And is that a part of adult education, Melissa? That's a sort of, if you may, I think that's a rather creative idea for one form of you know it's my gardening state again ed i would yeah. start it up yeah. and i would apply for a community learning account to have discussions in a particular area where we could all try and sort out maybe we could try and sort out local problems
3: well look um jeff i think they've definitely got the job i think you're going to have to switch off the telly at least briefly to sign <laughs> the to sign the executive orders and then you can go back to roadrunner and 57 varieties of Italian communism. Um, <laughs> Uh, Sir Alan Tuckett, Melissa Bennett, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having us.
5: Well, what did you think? It was a much more interesting subject than I was prepared for it to be. I wondered if it might be a little bit dry. Me too. I loved talking to Sue. I loved hearing about the difference it's made in her life, the... Stuff about this union learning fund. It it does seem petty. It's such a small amount of money. It's only twelve million pounds, which I
3: know, I, don't I know.
5: Turn my nose up at it, but in terms of government sure. spending, it's 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 um, insignificant. Yeah. And then I was I just always loved talking to Melissa. Uh, I thought Alan was fantastic, and I was really struck by this idea that I think lifelong education or adult education can sometimes be seen as, I don't know, like a a bit utopian or a bit of a luxury um, if it's not vocational training. And I really loved hearing about all the other areas it can spill over into, including actually
3: people's work. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I do think there's something rather interesting, isn't there, about this issue of, is it for a specific purpose to do with work? skills etc which is obviously incredibly important or is it just for fun yeah and I think both are important and it kind of goes to the question which I think is a really pressing interesting question for us I've been thinking about it in relation to my book actually which is do we just serve the market do we just serve the economy or does the economy and the country serve us I think it's quite defining this. I mean look, Alan Johnson's a good guy in my view.
5: Very good on the mass singer.
3: I remember yeah. I remember the Pilates and flower arranging stuff. Now in a world of constrained budgets, you can see why he said that or took that decision, but I think there is something about it's a it's a sort of character of the country question. Mm. And and what kind of country do we want to be? And I think there is a sort of value which you can't really put a price on of this adult education, which isn't just about increasing your GDP. Yes, exactly that. If, if we're trying to, if something we talked about with some
5: frequency is moving away from measuring the success of a country by its GDP, then you have to apply that same thinking to individual programs and, and policies and the things that make up a life.
3: Reasons to be cheerful
4: with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: If you've got thoughts about adult education, what you've heard on this week's episode, please do get in touch with us. We read all the emails, cheerfulpodcast.com, where you can also sign up to our newsletter. We'd like some nice ratings from you as well, just by the by. Um, And if you've got ideas for future shows, we'd also like... To hear from you. This comes from Mark Osborne, and the subject is cold showers, something I'm very interested in. Hi, Reasons to Be Cheerful is the closest I get to political information, but I write only to suggest to Ed that I find timing my cold shower with two songs usually ends up at about five minutes, my personal minimum adequate time. I do check that the tracks are not three minutes long. I'm sure Taylor Swift does two minutes, 30 second tracks, and then he does a, I think you call it an emoji, uh, with a wink. Um, I'm finding the cold showers more difficult, actually. Mm. I'm beginning to wonder whether it's because I've sort of got the opposite of um, acclimatised. You know, I haven't been doing the cold water swimming. So I'm wondering oh. if I'm finding the cold showers m- more difficult.
5: See, I, I am worried because with uh, with all the exercise, you're becoming very lean and sinewy. I think you need a bit of blubber for insulation when you're in the cold oh. shower that's what polar bears have.
3: Interesting.
5: Also, maybe um maybe you could make a playlist of songs to cold shower to that are all 2 minutes and 30 seconds long. Listeners could suggest additions and we can get like a Spotify list going. Definitely, okay all right this one comes from tina in oxford who says dear ed and jeff i'm writing in response to ed's view that november is the worst month i couldn't Ah, agree more says tina yeah tina is so depressing i was part of the lighter later campaign in 2012 interesting uh, uh, and she says i've made some nerdy graphs about what would happen if we moved our clocks forward to align with mainland europe interesting i'm looking at these graphs I'm attaching them as a PDF, which can be printed on card and then folded to show London Daylight Towers' status quo on one side and Central European Time on the other side. It's good graphs, good graphs. She says, the private member's bill for a three-year trial failed. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg filibustered it, and we've been suffering GMT ever since. At least I hope we'll switch to permanent BST when
3: Europe declares clock-changing dead. I mean, I must say, I have found it this winter, maybe it's because of lockdown and everything, I found it more sort of troubling, this the darkness, and I, I'm so relieved. I, I kind of say obsessively to my family, oh, it's getting... Have you noticed it's still light at 5.30, quarter to six, you know, and I, I do... I do really, really like that. Because you were talking last week about wanting to
5: move to Boca Vista in Florida uh, in the winter. I texted you that yeah. the place in the world with the most daylight hours is a oh, yeah. place called, I think, Zuma in Arizona. Sorry, I didn't te- get that text. Yuma, Yuma in. Uh, Zuma's one of the Paw Patrol. Yuma in Arizona. Is that where you and I are going to retire to then? <laughs> Like the odd couple.
3: Yeah, exactly. Thelma and Louise.
4: Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
3: Oh, we're in the outro. In the romantic
5: outro because we're heading into Valentine's Day weekend, which of course will have happened Ooh. by the time this comes out on Monday. Yes. What are, what are, your, what are your plans? Under wraps. I had an idea for you. Oh, yeah, go on. I desperately need them. Well, let me make this suggestion. Go on. So you're limited in your options, obviously, because of current conditions. Yeah. You've talked on the podcast before about how, as a young boy, you had violin lessons. Why don't you dig out the violin and serenade Justine with
3: it? Jeff, you've had many brilliant ideas (laughs) in the course of the last 178 episodes. And now, today... This isn't one of them. <laughs> uh, I think it would be... I think she'd think it was the cat screeching <laughs> in a fight with the fox. <laughs> At best. Right, shall we thank our guests? I'd like to thank Sue Mann, Sir Alan Tuckett, and the absolutely fandabby dozy Melissa Ben. Emma Caution produces our
5: podcast The research into the topics And the guests that you hear Is all done by Joel Pierce. With a little help from his friend Jack Jeffrey and Joe Kenyon at Goldfish uh, A big shout out to our friends At Left Foot Forward Gal Lofthouse is our announcer James Deacon made our audience Ed Seed composed the music And the artwork was
3: designed by Henricle He's been a cat at a bounder He's been a jolly good fellow